This is BVK for Ocean City Tourism, OCMD Streaming Audio. On March 11th, 2024, the title of the spot is STSA Leisure Summer. This is a 30-second composite stereo streaming audio mix. Get away with friends to the laid-back Maryland coast, where you can catch up while casting off and hang 10 while hanging out, where a day on board is never boring and full throttle is half the fun, where you can sink a putt, raise a glass, and there's always room for one more round. Ocean City, Maryland, somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at oceocean.com. Welcome back to Pod Save the World. I'm Tommy Vitor. I'm Ben Rhodes. Ben, great to see you. Good to be here. Um, I did notice that this is a tough week for former Deputy National Security Advisors. Ma- Matthew Pottinger, <laughs> yeah, yeah, Matthew Pottinger <laughs> Trump's Deputy National Security Advisor, yeah, it's is it's a close knit fraternity. Uh, hauled up yeah. to the Hill to testify in front of the Jan Six Committee. I just I didn't know if you had a comment on behalf of your your former job title, sort of. I you know Pottinger is one of these guys who was always. Uh, like both Trump adjacent and committee to save America adjacent. Mm, very much so. But managed to stay there for all four years until he principally resigned after January 6th. Um, yeah. So glad he did that. Glad he presumably is going to help uh, pin this <laughs> on Trump. Uh, but let's not forget uh, something that makes someone stick around. As Tim Miller talked about on Pot Save America, right? Like uh, the rationalizations mm-hmm. that kept yep. Ponder in that gig till... Until the violent insurrection yeah. um, need to be, you know, part of the full Yeah, picture. I give him some credit for walking. I give him credit. I, I wish he hadn't worked there in the first place. Um, yeah. What is funny, Ben, though, if you look back at uh, the job of national security advisor is very important. But if you look back at the people who have served in that role, quite a few of them uh, leave you a bit unsettled. There are a lot of crazy people, <laughs> yeah. a lot of criminals. Yeah. A few examples yeah, yeah, for you. Yeah. John Bolton. Right-wing zealot. And coup enthusiast. Mike Flynn, actual crazy person. Just complete QAnon lunatic. John Poindexter, national security advisor and deputy under Reagan, convicted of multiple criminal. penalties criminal. Criminal. under Iran-Contra. Bud McFarland, Iran-Contra. I will say all these guys so far are Republican. Yes. Not, not that our team is perfect, but still. Henry Kissinger, war criminal. There we go. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Sandy Berger, seems like a good yeah. guy, did some good work. Uh, you know, maybe put some documents, documents in his sock, in socks. a little yeah, bit that of was trouble. A weird, yeah. Listen, it's just weird. It yes. makes it hard to have a reunion. Yeah. The, well, as you know, uh, we won't tell the full story. Our former boss. But our former boss, uh, Tom Donilon, who, you know, a great guy and who his dream job as National Security Advisor. Yeah. First thing he wanted to do after he got that job is to gather all the formers because yeah. it was kind of Seek this, their counsel. Both to seek their counsel, but I think it was a moment of like joining the club. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the people who put together the meeting kind of forgot that some of the people on that list were indicted. <laughs> <laughs> didn't exactly do that. Yeah, didn't that. Yeah, the vet comes yeah. back. It's like, uh, yeah. four counts? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway, they all so, got pardoned by Bush. Yes. I digress, Ben. Uh, great show today. We're going to do an after action on President Biden's trip to the Middle East. In all the ways, it was fantastic. <laughs> we'll explain why 9-11 families are furious at President Trump. We'll talk about the future of efforts to prevent climate change as Europe burns 
and Joe Manchin makes a mockery of all of us, mm-hmm. and makes us insane. Uh, the latest from Sri Lanka, why the Prime Minister of Italy may resign. It seems like yeah. it's unclear right now. Uh, we'll take a quick look at Fox News' foreign coverage and why it's so mm. excellent. We'll talk about Mike Pompeo's presidential ambitions, uh, a mustard shortage, it's making news all across Europe, and then finally, what Boris Johnson's political successors think of him. And then I interview Politico's Christopher Miller about all the latest news from Ukraine. Yeah. As always, just a stand-up guy. Had been out in the field reporting all day long and then talked to me at like 10 p.m., 11 p.m. his time. Basically, Pod Say the World Chief Ukraine Correspondent Absolutely. As well. I mean, we can, we can give him that title. Job yeah. pays well. Not compensated, but we can give him that title. <laughs> uh, before we get to the news, two things. First, Ben, if you like good coffee, and if you ever thought to yourself, hey, what if I could buy really good coffee but also help women get registered to vote all across the United yeah. States, we got you covered. Go to crooked.com slash coffee. If you subscribe, you get 25% off. Second, there's a new podcast coming out that yes. worldos are going to love. I, I'm grabbing the worldos by the lapels. Lapels held. I'm telling you that you need to listen to this podcast. It is called Another Russia. Another Russia. And it premieres next week. And I think we're going to do a drop on this feed. Yes. So uh, when you see it in your Pods of the World feed, Don't smash you delete the button. that. Don't you, you smash the button. You listen to that. You You're going to hear Ben. But, but to be clear, this is uh, Jana Nemsova, who some of you may have heard um, Jana uh, did this podcast with me. She brought this idea to me, and it's the two of us telling the story of her father, Boris Nemtsov, who was assassinated in the shadow of the Kremlin in uh, 2015. But what's really interesting is if you look back at Boris's life, he was a physicist who got into politics after Chernobyl, mm-hmm. right, the nuclear meltdown. He was elected as the Soviet Union collapsed and they started to hold free elections. He was ascendant as a 30-something young governor, and Boris Yeltsin literally said he was going to be his successor. So this was a guy, a liberal Democrat, who was slated to be the next president of Russia. He goes to Moscow, tries to take on the oligarchs. Doesn't end well for Boris Nemtsov. Then uh, Putin takes his place as the heir apparent, uh, and then he moves into opposition. And he is kind of a a lonely voice in opposition until he teams up with Alexei Navalny helps lead some of the the biggest protests in Russia after the fall of the Soviet Union. Uh, And then he protested really bravely the annexation of Crimea and the original war in Ukraine. And and that's when he gets assassinated. But the reason I tell that story, Tommy, is that his life like eerily mirrors every major event uh, in Russian history, basically from Chernobyl to where we are now. And so you'll learn about this extraordinary guy. You'll learn the story of how he got here. You'll hear this incredibly, like, Jana is an amazing person. You will feel like you are her friend by yeah. the, the end of the first episode, uh, as well as a lot of other voices. So, I, I you know, I liked Missing America. The, if some of you guys listen to that, this is better. Because uh, it's, mm. it's, just, it's just such a compelling story, a human story about a family, first and foremost. And you hear Jana kind of let you into um, what her relationship was like. If you've ever wondered what's the psychology of the family of, of, uh, of someone who's putting it all on the line and risking their life. Uh, Jana sheds light on that. So I uh, really encourage people to check it out. It's a, I cannot wait to hear it. It's such a sliding doors moment. I mean, like Russia is a big, dynamic, incredible country full of brilliant people. It doesn't have to be what it is today under Vladimir Putin. You know, it could have had different leadership and a different outcome. And Boris Nemtsov is someone who could have led Russia to a different outcome. And understanding those moments and how yeah. things change is so important. There's a moment in episode two that I, is crazy. It's like there's... You have to listen, but basically Boris is trying to take on the oligarchs around the kind of fire sale of the economy, and he loses that battle, um, 
and it's kind of like that's the sliding doors moment. Like, what if what if he had been able to steamroll these oligarchs, you know, uh, and because then, then the oligarchs turned to Putin. You know, they said, well, we can't trust these young reformer types. We need to go find a KGB guy to do our yeah, bidding. Yeah. Pod drops July 25th. It's Ben Metchin. We'll do a feed drop in the Pod Save the World feed. Could not be more excited about this show. You guys are going to love it. Could not be more timely, by yeah. the way. Yeah. It's, it, so. We rushed it because of Ukraine, but yeah. it, no diminution in quality. Absolutely not. Absolutely <laughs> not. Uh, okay. Let's start with President Biden's trip to the Middle East. Uh, let's do this Israel part first. We'll do the Saudi part second. So, Ben, I suspect that Biden's team is pretty happy politically with the Israel leg of the trip. Biden was greeted uh, warmly by Israeli politicians across the political spectrum, such, such as a spectrum exists. <laughs> from, from the center to the far right. <laughs> from center to the <laughs> yeah, far yeah, right. Yeah. He was warmly greeted. There was, a, there was actually a, a real warm, touching moment when Biden met with some Holocaust survivors at mm-hmm. Yad Vashem, I believe. It was incredibly powerful. Um, you know, generally, Biden sounded very hawkish on Iran. He did so during a press conference with acting Prime Minister Yair Lapid. He did, you know, he did an Israeli TV interview where he was again hawkish on Iran. I'm sure that'll play well in With Israel. friend of the pod, Yonit Levy. That's right. That's right. I was like, damn, yeah. good for her. Um, Biden signed this joint declaration uh, about Israel's security. He checked out a new anti-drone laser weapon. Sounds cool, yep. I guess. Yep. Um, he announced some assistance for the Palestinian uh, East Jerusalem Hospital Network. It's got to be approved by Congress, but it'd be about $100 million. Uh, and then Biden flew direct from Tel Aviv to Saudi Arabia, which I kept getting reported on as some historic first, but it just a- actually wasn't. I mean, it's notable, but it's not the first time that's happened. Anyway, zero progress on peace talks or Palestinian state. Then again, like I suspect this achieved a lot for the Biden team politically in Israel but I do think, you know, if there's anything I missed in the trip, flag it. And we should probably talk about the the worrisome trajectory of U.S. rhetoric and Israeli rhetoric towards Iran. Yeah. So I guess I'll start with the positive because um, I think there is something positive. I mean, as, as someone who traveled with President Obama to Israel, like, you know, it, it is Israel's a small country with a very difficult history. And I think it really does matter a lot to have a U.S. president show up. And and to kind of speak to the you know the the tragic history obviously that you alluded to when he uh, had that touching moment with those Holocaust survivors and, and speak to the fact that you know Israel exists and and is is more secure uh, in in some part I mean mostly obviously because of what Israelis have done but because of this relationship it has with the United States it's yeah. so central to their place in the world and so I think he spoke to the US Israel relationship in a way as Ram Ebanio would say he felt it in his kitchkas yeah I mean it was like it felt very sincere because it is he actually, was kind of taking out the kitchkas yeah. you know? um, now on the other side I you didn't mention that he had this kind of bromance uh, with Bibi Netanyahu. Um, you know, it just hurts me which, to say it out loud. Which was painful to see. I think Still he, don't get he, it. You know, the reports that he said, you know, I love you on the tarmac to Bibi and then had this meeting that went on for like 20 minutes or which something. Again, Mrs. Netanyahu does just, not love him. So yeah, like, why would you say that? Well, as you alluded to last time, I mean, in addition to the fact that Bibi Netanyahu has tried to defeat Democrats <laughs> and uh, has tried to undermine, uh, you know, foreign policies of Democratic administrations, including one Joe Biden served in, um, you know, he was making fun of Biden like a few days ago, you know, in interviews, you know, literally pretending to fall asleep. Yeah. Um, and he might be going to jail. 
and he may be going to jail, and he may be, you know, for a lot of reasons, maybe a criminal. So <laughs> I just did. I thought that was overkill. It was unnecessary. I, and I, I didn't get it from a protocol standpoint or from a political perspective, but I don't know. Because if you say, well, maybe BB could get back to being prime minister, and so he's establishing some relationship. No, he did, he already has a relationship with BB Netanyahu, and nobody, I think, should think in the White House, and I hope they don't, that if BB's prime minister. That he'll somehow go easy on Biden no. against Donald Trump or Ron DeSantis. You know, th- th- that's what Bibi wants. No. Then the, the other thing I think that's worth noting is the Palestinian issue, which is it was such, I mean, man, like it, it barely registered. I mean, they didn't even really try to check the talking points box on two state solution. Um, and, and, you know, great, like some assistance to the Palestinians, but like there was literally no political vision or. It just feels like a Palestinian state is is no longer even an objective, really, yeah. of U.S. foreign policy. He met with Mahmoud Abbas, but you're right. It's just it. it... And I'm sympathetic. Look, I, there's no clear path to get there, right? Yeah, um, I, don't, I don't think Biden could. could kick yeah, start I don't. Those I don't think he could have done something right. that would have necessarily like led us in the direction of Palestinian state. But the more it kind of begins to fade, <laughs> like and flicker as even an objective of the United States the more impossible it becomes. Mm-hmm. And and that leaves you with these bad options we've talked about, like a one-state solution or, or really just Palestinians getting displaced or, or, or living, you know, as second-class uh, citizens or, or under occupation. So that that's depressing. And it ties into the Abraham Accords theme of the trip, which is something that has totally left the Palestinians behind. Um, then the Iran thing, I mean, we can, you know, this will lead us into the discussion of the, the Gulf leg. But, you know, if you listen to his rhetoric, he made a point in saying in his own voice, which we've not heard before, that he will not remove this sanction, this designation of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard to get a deal. And he said he'd rather not have a deal um, if it meant lifting that sanction, which, mm-hmm. look, I'm just, we're going to be a little, a little hard on Biden in the segment. Uh, all the caveats that, like, he's far, far better than uh, the alternatives, and he's doing a lot right. But th- that doesn't make any sense. Like, this designation doesn't get us anything. It doesn't put the IRGC out of business. It certainly doesn't do anything to slow down the Iranian nuclear program. Why you would choose a kind of meaningless, symbolic designation that Donald Trump imposed for political purposes over a nuclear deal that would actually roll back the Iranian nuclear program. I don't get it. It just doesn't make any sense. And it, it felt like it, it was adding to this kind of momentum towards confrontation with Iran and the risk of, of escalation with Iran that kind of emerged as something of a theme of the trip. Yeah. All right. So that gets us to the next leg of President Biden's trip, which was to Saudi Arabia. So for me, Ben, like, you know, the lasting image out of this trip is undoubtedly going to be President Biden fist bumping with the Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, or MBS for short. So uh, MBS, for those who don't know, is the guy who ordered the execution of journalist Jamal Khashoggi, among many, many other human rights violations. When the trip started, when Biden was kind of flying over to Israel, he started to see these reports about Biden fist bumping people during the trip instead of handshaking yeah. because COVID safety reasons. That quickly was abandoned. You saw Biden hugging people, shaking their hands, whatever. Like, listeners might be thinking, who cares? And normally I'd say, you're right, protocol, whatever, who cares? But in this case, it looked like they were kind of setting up the fist bump as a way to demonstrate why Biden wouldn't be shaking hands with MBS. But unfortunately, I came away feeling like the fist bump looked worse than the handshake. Because optically to me, 
a handshake is a generic greeting, right? You, you, you shake hands with people you don't know, people you like, people you hate. A fist bump kind of has like a celebratory vibe. Like, yeah, yeah. we did it. You well, know yeah, what I mean? That's, that's what it is. Yeah. Know? I mean, that's the origin of a fist bump, you know? Yeah. And, and also it kind of played it. We'll get into the substance, but it, it, because you and I have been on trips where there are dumb optics things that there were rightful media criticisms uh, of the focus on yes. the optic. I actually think this one's a little different. I did right? too. And I did too. It, it, look, it also is because Mohammed bin Salman is kind of like a murderous dictator bro, mm-hmm. you know, because like he's in his 30s. Yeah. And, and, and so it kind of lent this era. Of, <laughs> he's planning like a Saudi fire fest. So. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It kind of lent this aura of like intimacy and, yeah. and, and like literally this guy. The guy you're fist bumping ordered the assassination and dismemberment of a Washington Post journalist, um, among, again, many other uh, things. And I just don't know what they thought, why that was preferable to a handshake. It, it just it, – it, and it will be – you know, you don't like – I wish it weren't the case, but it will be a lasting image. Like yeah. I think it will be an image of – that we'll, we'll be looking at years from now. It was know? a tough, tough, tough photo. Um, to the substance, Biden did raise the Khashoggi case directly with MBS. Uh, MBS apparently responded with a bunch of sort of whataboutism arguments about U.S. human rights abuses. Doesn't sound like a lot was accomplished there. And then the Saudis denied that he raised it in the way he said he did. It was just Yeah, there were a bunch of competing readouts and <laughs> yeah. it was just a mess. And then, you know, notably there were no public promises uh, about the Saudis increasing oil and gas production. Maybe those happened privately. Um, maybe there will be some surge in production in a few months. Who knows? But, you know, there was another round of really, you know, hawkish comments about Iran. Um, then you know, I'll stop there. I mean, my main takeaway is that obviously the president of the United States has to meet with countries and leaders that we don't like. That is clearly part of the job. I've just, even now, days after this trip happened, I'm not really sure why this visit had to happen in Saudi Arabia and happen now. Maybe in six months, the Saudis will be like working overtime to sustain uh, availability of oil and gas and, you know, keep the the ability for us, the Ukrainians, to keep fighting against the Russians and keep sanctions in place. I don't know. But, you know, between the MBS fist bump, meeting with President El-Sisi of Egypt, and then Jamal Khashoggi's former lawyer getting arrested and sentenced to three years of prison in the UAE during Biden's trip, uh, it was a bit of a human rights disaster. Yes. Uh, and I'm glad you let's start there. I mean, so because you, you you make the point that's right, like you have to deal with everybody. Nobody is sitting here and saying we should not deal with the Saudi government. Uh, we're not even saying that he like there's no world in which he sees MBS at some summit and has a conversation with them. We're talking about going there with a lot of pomp and circumstance, you know, never mind the fist bump, the summits and other countries coming and and look what's happened since um, among the countries that he met with. You know, Egypt has just a horrific human rights record. And there are just reports every day about the, the dire circumstances for tens of thousands of political prisoners. And there we are kind of, you know, meeting with Sisi in Saudi Arabia, you know, his principal sponsor. It just sends a message of complete complicity. You do whatever you want, you know, because at the end of the day, we're not going to hold you to account. The Emiratis, right? Um, th- while, while this visit is ongoing, they grab... Jamal Khashoggi's lawyer, who at the airport, he was changing flights. He wasn't even like- He was going to yeah, Turkey. He was going to Turkey. And then they charge him with money laundering 
The UAE is like the fucking money laundering capital of the world. There are Russian oligarchs who are literally got trunks of their crap. Yeah, their like, yachts are there. In, in Dubai hotels and their yachts are parked there and they're charging Jamal Khashoggi, you know, the money laundering task force in, in the Emirates is like like pulling this guy off an airplane. Like this is- During the trip. Which is them sending a message. It's yeah. sending a message of like, look, we don't care because we just had the president of the United States come to our summit, Little right? Finger. Um, so uh, but what I worry about is that the autocratic impulses of a lot of these governments are going to be kind of reinforced by, uh, but, you know, by the fact that they feel like they can do whatever they want and the U.S. is never going to hold them accountable. Then you get into other substance. Um, best case scenarios you might have thought of were some announcement of an increase in oil production. Like that was just there was nothing on that. You know, it was like, Literally. The Saudis were basically like, well, there's an OPEC meeting coming up uh, yeah. later we'll this summer, you know. and we'll let you know if we feel like doing anything. But uh, kind of the, the mood music was not good on that. Um, and then Yemen, uh, you know, where you would have hoped that the ceasefire, that there might have been like a really concerted effort towards kind of ending that uh, war. You know, there was some, I think, announcement of some additional humanitarian aid. That's great. But I mean, for you know, given that the Saudis have bottomless wealth, like, I don't give them that big of an attaboy for that. And so the U.S., you know, again, continues to be on that side of that conflict in a way that goes against what, you know, Joe Biden and and everybody in the Democratic Party was arguing in the Trump years, right? And and this is something that's, I think, important. Like, we cannot, you know, it's not just, people talk about the hypocrisy of uh, the United States foreign policy and how we always have these contradictions. That's true. But then there's also the question of, like, what you say, you know, the whole Democratic Party decides we got to rethink the Saudi relationship and that we have to put MBS on ice when Donald Trump is president. Like it just it's not a good look when that is no longer the case when Donald Trump is no longer president. Yeah. Now, the, where they landed on kind of the justification, you saw this in the stories at the end of the trip, I think is their best argument, which is the Russia-China argument. Um, and, you know, they're basically, Biden said, you know, we're not going to be pushed out of this region by Russia and China. We talked a bit last week about how that's not, there's not some world in which Russia and China can take the place of the United States, given that the entire military apparatus of these countries has kind of been built to, to plug into ours. But I think there is uh, probably a geopolitical argument that, you know, absent engagement from the U.S., like there's further openings for the Russians and Chinese to make inroads. And, and that's that's their best argument. And so maybe what they did is hold some odious status quo. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I just don't think that that is enough, in my view, to justify it. And I get people, you know, people can disagree with that. I mean, people can say it's a tough world out there. Um, we got to deal with these, these guys, and they're all guys, um, because we've got big challenges like Russia and China. Um, but I, I, I don't know. I, this one, the scales tip over, I think, in the other direction. The fist bump photo bummed me out, and I, I stayed in that place for a long time. Um, because Gallo's humor is all we have, the most memorable line of the entire trip was when a media consultant for the Saudi government <laughs> was pressed by some Washington Post reporters about why they had been locked out of a briefing. And she literally, she literally replied, don't kill me, I'm just the messenger. Oh, my God. It's dark, right? That is an interesting word choice. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, related story. We're moving on. Families of the victims of the 9-11 attacks are furious at President Trump because of his support for the Saudi-backed Live Golf Tour. We've talked about this in the past. The Live Golf Tour is this massive infusion of cash. They're trying to start a competing golf tour to the PGA, play pairs more. They bought off Phil Mickelson, all these famous guys, blah, blah, blah. Trump 
is going to host a live tour tournament at his club in Bedminster later this month. And obviously he's going to get paid a ton of money. Of course he is, right? This makes, this was so predictable. The 9-11 families are pointing out how in the past, Trump has specifically singled out and blamed Saudi Arabia for the 9-11 attacks. And they're saying, hey, buddy, your club is in New Jersey, where 700 people died on 9-11. 700 New Jersey residents were killed on 9-11. Trump, of course, doesn't give a shit. Does not give a shit. He wants to get paid and he wants (laughs) to get back at the PGA, the Professional Golfers Association, because uh, they moved their 2022 championship tournament from his course after the insurrection, as they should have. So Trump is out there defending the decision. But again, you know, Ben, I don't want to compare Biden and Trump here at all. It's not. It's apples, oranges. But, you know, right, like Biden's the president. He's conducting foreign policy. Trump is just trying to make cash. But it does, again, like it makes it a little harder for us to criticize Trump or all these folks going along with the Saudi tour because, like, everyone's staring at the fist bump picture. And it just it just sucks. Yeah. No, we always knew that there was going to be a reputation laundering aspect to the trip and to the fist bump uh, because it's harder and harder to say to businesses or anybody, like, don't deal with the Saudis when, you know, the president is over there fist bumping him uh, on his home turf. That said, though, I I do want to draw a distinction here. Some people said, well, this shows there's no difference between Trump and Biden in this trip. There is. I mean, you know, Joe Biden acquiesced to this trip. I wish he didn't. But like, Donald Trump like wrapped his arms around these people. He outsourced every aspect of our policy to these people in a way that I don't think Biden's doing. uh, although there's some policies like Iran where I'm, you know, I wish that he'd, he'd taken a hard, harder stance against uh, Iran deal critics. And he's not getting paid. Like, no, nobody thinks Joe Biden is going to be on the take from the Saudis, right? I, I mean, and think about it. Like, this is a lot of money. I mean- I bet it's tens of millions. This is the kind of thing where- not hundreds. Like, we have no law against it. And maybe we should look at this, that like the Saudis can continue to just pump money into the Trump organization, Kushner, while he's an active, you know, actively saying he's going to run for president yeah. in 2024. Like, you don't think that they're trying to put a down payment on the kind of influence that they had in the past, continuing on the second Trump administration? Uh, so, of course, it's just gross. Uh, I don't know if you were, saw the uh, Yankees Red Sox game Sunday night, but Fox Sports for some reason showed a shot of Ground Zero, and they decided to superimpose the Yankees, Red Sox, and Baseball Night in America logos over it. Literally unbelievable. Interesting choice. Um, as a New Yorker, like there are many other venues uh, in that. It's not like it's a city mm-hmm. with that. That's the only. Yeah, a lot of iconic. Yeah, sites. <laughs> there's a lot of iconic yeah, sites. Maybe where you, don't do it. On. So yes, uh, I saw that apology. I didn't see the game. I saw the apology. Pod Save the World is brought to you by the UN Refugee Agency. The UN Refugee Agency, or UNHCR, responds to emergencies and provides long-term solutions for refugees. They provide aid in over 130 countries, including Ukraine, Syria, Afghanistan, and Sudan, where people are forced to flee from war and persecution at their greatest moment of need. UNHCR helps and protects refugees by providing food, shelter, medical care, and other life-saving essentials. The agency jumpstarts relief in three key ways. They transport core relief items stored in even the most remote areas of the world. They deploy expert emergency staff trained to help in crisis situations, and they transfer funds directly to support the emergency. Because of generous supporters and donors, UNHCR can scale up its response within 72 hours of a large-scale emergency. Your support helps provide life-saving aid for refugees whenever and wherever emergencies occur. Donate to USA for UNHCR by visiting unrefugees.org slash donation. That's unrefugees.org slash donation.
Support for Pod Save the World comes from the International Rescue Committee. The IRC works in more than 50 countries, serving people whose lives have been upended by war, conflict, and natural disasters. In places like Gaza, Ukraine, and Sudan, displaced families are experiencing war, extreme hunger, and life-threatening injuries. In Gaza, ongoing violence, bombardment, and blockade have made survival difficult for families living in damaged buildings and tents. The lack of safe water, medicine, and healthy food contributes to the spread of diseases, and children are especially at risk. The International Rescue Committee is working with local partners in Gaza to provide life-saving medical care to injured civilians. The IRC works around the world to help families in crisis by delivering critical supplies such as therapeutic food for malnourished children, clean water, cash assistance, and more. Your donation will support this work and help children and families survive. Listen, the International Rescue Committee is an incredible organization. They are doing the Lord's work all around the globe. I have donated to them, you know, for many, many years now because I know that my dollar will go towards helping people. It's not going to go to administrative costs or overhead fees. It's just an incredible group doing great work. I hope you'll consider them. Donate today by visiting rescue.org slash rebuild. That's rescue.org slash rebuild. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Listen, if you're listening to Pod Save the World, you need some therapy. If you're watching the events around the world that might freak you out, We've got this election coming down the pike. There's a lot of stuff that people uh, are stressed about, that are anxious about, stuff that makes you lose sleep, and therapy can help. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash crookedworld. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash crookedworld. Okay, uh, moving on. Let's talk about climate change because it's been a brutal week for anyone who cares about global climate change and the fate of the planet. We got heat waves scorching the planet here in the U.S., in Europe, where people don't have air conditioning, in the U.K., in Spain, in Portugal, people are dying. Uh, in Central Asia, the global south, this is like standard fare, right? You look at the temperature in Iraq, it's like 100 degrees because yeah. it is all the time. As this is happening, Joe Manchin decided to tank a bill that would have actually let the U.S. do something about climate change by transitioning to clean energy. So that sucks. But Ben, just for listeners, like the U.S. is 15% of global emissions, right? So that means other countries can do a whole lot of work to reduce emissions and, and save all of us. It's a lot harder without U.S. leadership, but it's possible. What are you looking for or who are you looking to internationally for hope and action that might actually be meaningful? Yeah, I mean, it's super depressing. And on this one, let's be clear, this is not Joe Biden's fault. It's Joe um, fucking Manchin. This is Joe Manchin's And fault. the Republican Party. This is Cole Barron. The entire Republican yeah, Party. Yeah, Cole Barron, Joe Manchin, and the Republican Party killing what may be the last best chance for climate action, assuming, you know, if the midterms go the wrong way, and hopefully they don't. I think people have to understand, first of all, it's worth reiterating the point, the whole international effort uh, against climate change is predicated on kind of nations taking different but concerted action. Um, and the reason that's an important thing to remember, and that's the basis of the Paris Agreement, is that when the United States has its, I was going to say foot on the gas, it's probably not the best mm, climate. Yeah, sure, it actually kind of works. When the United States has its foot on the gas of an electric car um, in terms of the transition to clean energy, it accelerates the global action, right? Because it allows us to go to other countries and say, 
we're raising our ambition. Our commitment to reduce emissions is going up by this much. And therefore, you know, you, India, you, China, we want to see what skin you're putting in the game. That's literally how we got to a Paris Agreement. That's, you know, how they tried to move the ball forward um, uh, in Glasgow, although they they didn't in part, not not, not the only reason, but in, in some part because the U.S. couldn't show that it was doing more legislatively in the run-up to, to Glasgow as Biden wanted. Um, remember, Bill Back Better mm-hmm. originally was supposed to, get done to get done by then. before Glasgow for a reason, so that they could go there and say, look what we just did. Now you guys going to kick in uh, your actions. So I think if the U.S. has to reduce its ambition because of Colbert and Joe Manchin, the Republican Party, um, you know, it just makes it that much harder. And, and, and to me, what's kind of depressing about it is it feels more and more like governments are not going to solve this problem, you know, um, which they should because governments are the institutions that can compel the most dramatic action. Um, Sure, like, you know, Europe can lead on a bunch of stuff and hopefully other countries can kind of pioneer new methods of, you know, guarding against deforestation or transitioning to different forms of renewables. But, you know... Unfortunately, I mean, at Glasgow, a lot of the action shifted to the private sector. And it was like, what is the private sector going to do? How much financing can there be for clean energy and climate mitigation? And the activists were really skeptical of that for good reason, because it's hard to trust asset managers and corporations to save the world. But I I, I think we are in a place where, you know, governments doing what they can, state and local governments, not just in this country, but around the world, cities – um, which you know are big emitters and, and, and states and region regional governments doing even more um, and yes the the question of like financing a clean energy transition in the private sector and through philanthropy like I think we're, we we have to reckon uh, those of us who care about climate with the reality that we can't just have a government strategy on this thing and I'm not saying activists have had that the activists have known this for a while but more and more it looks like some of these solutions are going to have to come outside of national governments. Yeah. I mean, also frustratingly in this process, Manchin is also holding up efforts to create a global minimum tax. We, we've talked about yeah, this in the past. Yeah, huge deal. Yeah. Basically, he's trying trying to help prevent multinational corporations from you know playing games to avoid paying taxes by paying a global 15% minimum. So that's wonderful, too. There were some reports today that President Biden is considering declaring a climate emergency. That lets him redirect spending towards renewable energy projects, would let him block oil and gas drilling. That report got then slapped down by other reports. Hopefully he'll do it, but you know, Ho- it does seem like there is an emergency. Hopefully he'll do it. And just a quick point on global minimum taxes, because this is one of the more interesting, creative, and, and awesome things that the Biden administration has been yeah, doing. Yellen's been working on really Janet Yellen's been out there like just setting a floor under uh, global taxation with as many countries as you want. Once again, that requires other countries and their parliaments to pass laws to raise you know, taxes and to, to close loopholes um, to combat inequality and tax evasion. And when the U.S., the biggest economy, can't meet its commitment, again, not because of Joe Biden, because of fucking Joe Manchin, you know, other countries are probably not going to push this in their parliaments. You know? Yeah. And also some businesses just want it to happen. So they have certainty. But think about it, like global climate change and global inequality. Arguably the two like biggest challenges we face in Joe Manchin. Two things the Democratic Party should be for. Yeah. Again, we should blame Republicans because they all are opposing these things, but Manchin, it's inexcusable. Ben, speaking of creative solutions, um, in the UK, one movie theater chain offered free movie tickets to redheads to get them out of the heat on what could be the hottest day of the year. Creative thinking happening. My wife, you know, would have there you go. thrived. Yeah. You uh maybe you could have piggybacked in. <laughs> and then the sad part though, unfortunately, 
some of the idiocy you hear on Fox News and other kind of right-wing outlets in the U.S. is spreading. Here's sort of the U.K. equivalent of Fox talking about a heat wave that is going to kill people. Every time I've turned on anyone's talking about the weather, they're saying that there's going to be tons of fatalities. But haven't we always had hot weather, John? I mean, wasn't the 76, the summer of 76, that was as hot as this, wasn't it? Uh, no. Uh, and, you know, we are seeing more and more records, more and more frequently and more and more severely. No. <laughs> well, no. No. Anyway. Uh, yeah, that. I, I, we, we have to get to London at some point and do like a show. We need more people yeah. like John. Yeah, yeah we need more TV people like John. Uh, all right, let's move to Italy because Italy is on the cusp of a political crisis that is really, you know, an ominous side for leaders across Europe who are trying to contend with these high energy prices that we're talking about. Last week, Prime Minister Mario Draghi announced that he was quitting the job when members of his governing coalition in the Five Star Movement, which is a political party, basically threatened to withdraw support from Draghi and upend the entire government. In the weeks since, Draghi is getting petitioned, begged, pleaded with to stay in the job, and he's supposed to decide sometime later this week, so after we record. This split is over how much Italy should do to support Ukraine, how much they should spend, and how the government should respond to inflation. The concern in Italy is that if Draghi walks and Italy has to call a snap election, that right-wing parties would likely gain ground, and that in turn could change the the makeup of the government, uh, reduce Italy's support for Ukraine, put a pro-Putin leader in, in charge, and potentially just be viewed as like a canary in the coal mine all across Europe for leaders who are dealing with populist forces and the fallout from inflation and energy prices spiking. So, Ben... You know, I, I am. I remain worried about this. I've been worried about Italy yeah. for a while. They've never really recovered from the financial crisis. They've had a number of fragile governments over and over and over again that have toppled. But I do worry about, you know, with high gas prices, unemployment high, inflation high, you could see populist anger get unleashed during these tough economic times and see some, you know, real scary right-wing populism. And there's a dark history of that in Italy in particular. Yeah, this is really crazy and worth watching because Mario Draghi, uh, nicknamed Super Mario, um, for his efforts to save the euro uh, when he was kind of running the European Central Bank, he kind of came into this crazy, unstable Italian political environment a couple of years ago. And since he became prime minister, he's this kind of super technocrat, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah. Since he became prime minister, he is just like hit it out of the park. Like he stabilized the economy. He made all these changes that allowed, you know, unlocked like billions of euros in, in post-pandemic assistance to help their economy recover. Um, you know, he's getting the books in order. He took a really principled stance on Ukraine, which is not, you know, Italy traditionally has been a little bit more Russia friendly. Yeah, and they did it early. They did it early. Ahead of the Germans, ahead they, of a bunch of others. Ahead of the Germans, they supported uh, Ukrainian membership and accession into the European Union. Um, but and it's not just... I want to be very clear. It's not just that this is a guy that like hits the right chords in the kind of globalist uh, establishment. He's doing good work. Like Italy is getting things are getting better in Italy because of Mario Draghi's leadership. Um, so you know, kind of a strange time to kick the guy out. But this five star movement that had to buy into this unity government uh, is the thing that cracked. And keep in mind who these guys are like Steve Bannon like hung out with these guys. <laughs> like these are like war room pod listeners, right? Fun. Um, and and so these are the guys who could bring it all down. And, and these are kind of right-wing populists, like you said, who could throw Italy back into kind of political chaos, could be a bellwether for inflation, kind of driving out even well-performing governments. It's not like Draghi's like dropping the, the ball in this. In fact, who would, who would you rather have as prime minister in dealing with like an inflationary crisis, the guy who's like the, the most ingenious technocrat in Europe or 
like the Steve Bannon acolyte. Right? Yeah, that's not a hard one. Um, so this would be really bad. Hopefully they can find a way to at least keep Draghi there for a while. But I mean, these these clouds have been gathering for some time. Yeah, and if you if you see this government go down in Italy, I, I really worry about what it does to European unity in, in the face yeah, of yeah. A, a winter coming up and a desperate need for natural gas from Russia. This is Putin's strategy, that, right? Like strategy. what's happening in Italy is actually part of Putin's war strategy in Ukraine. Absolutely. Uh, speaking of the war in Ukraine, speaking of Putin, and we talk about it extensively again in, in the show with Christopher Miller later, Vladimir Putin made a visit to Tehran today uh, where he met with Iranian President Ibrahim Raisi uh, and Turkish President Tayyip Erdogan. Great to see uh, a, a leader of a NATO country in the mix yeah, there. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I'm sure that was a fun meeting. Yeah. Curious how the discussion of, of Turkey's sale of incredibly lethal drones to the Ukrainian uh, military went over. Um, they reportedly discussed Syria, uh, grain exports, energy prices. Putin also met with uh, Iran's supreme leader. They released one of those memorable photos where Putin is like 30 feet away from his interlocutor. Ben- No table though. No table in tiny little chairs. Tiny chairs. Um, besides triggering every foreign policy official in Washington, <laughs> what do you think the purpose of this visit was? And what the fuck is Erdogan doing there? Yeah. I mean, Erdo Erdogan's always kind of had this thing where he kind of tries to play all sides. Um, but he's had like pretty notable, you know, spats obviously with Putin too. Um, I think ostensibly they were trying to frame this as like a summit to discuss Syria, um, where, you know, Turkey obviously has this long border and Russia and Iran have all the influence. Um, but I don't think that in normal times, Vladimir Putin would fly to Iran, just have a meeting about Syria. No, you know? <laughs> like, this is the second time um, he's left the country since the war started. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the first time he's left a kind of Soviet uh, former Soviet Union space. And and so to me, it, it's like him wanting to show that he's not diplomatically isolated um, in the face of the war. But also, you know, there's been these reports that he wants military cooperation from Iran. I, I'm not like, not that sure how grave that is in the sense that like, there were reports of Iran providing hundreds of drones. Like, I, I don't know that like, Iran does have some of these drones, but I don't know it's going to like tip the balance on the battlefield, put it that way. But it, if anything, it shows how kind of pathetic Putin is that like he needs to go hat in hand to the Iranians for for some drones and a, a little military support. Um, so so I think you can read it that way. You can read it as kind of a bit of a move of desperation from Putin um, if he's like literally turning to the Iranians to be a military supplier. I'm sure he would have preferred that the Chinese um, mm -hmm. backfill his military. And, and, and when he, list, he looked at the list of creepy autocratic governments that he could turn to, um, you know, if he had to cross the Chinese off on the on the military side, although they are buying all his oil and stuff, um, you know, he's left with Iran. So, um, but it does speak to this kind of weird new post-Ukraine world we're in where the world is kind of sorting itself out in these like hardening blocks, you know? And and that is, um, you know, that's a worrisome trend because like kind of pre-World War One history suggests <laughs> that, that that can lead to, you know, access mm. and allies kind yeah. of uh, stuff. Tangling alliances. Yeah. yeah, you don't want that. Uh, let's check in quickly with Sri Lanka. Uh, Sri Lanka's acting president did an interview with CNN. It's former prime minister, uh, Ranil Rikremasinghe. He said to CNN in this interview that the economic situation is even worse than has been disclosed previously and that former president Rajapaksa has been lying to the country, lying to the public. Uh, Rikremasinghe is the guy former prime minister whose house was burned to the ground. Uh, we talked about him, I think, last week or the week yeah. before. So the former president, Rajapaksa, he's fled the country. He got out of there to the Seychelles, maybe Singapore, who God knows where that guy is now. Um, th on Wednesday, so when the day this comes out, Sri Lanka's parliament is supposed to pick a new president. Uh, but the protesters 
who have been on the streets for months, if not longer, are not thrilled with the idea of uh, the former six-time prime minister taking over. That that doesn't seem like the fresh start. Seventh time is not usually a have been looking for. <laughs> I think this would be a six, so I guess five time, <laughs> yeah. really. Um, yeah, no, the maybe the um, the burning house thing might have been yeah. sort of a signal there. Anyway, so uh, Rick Remesinga declared a state of emergency in an effort to keep protesters from stopping parliament from working. So Ben, long story short, still just a super dicey situation, totally unresolved, not clear what's going to happen. You know, there's some speculation that all these guys are just trying to get the presidency so they can get out of the country and kind of uh, avoid uh, prosecution. But yeah. we'll see. Yeah. I mean, number one, when the, the president leaves to go to the Seychelles and I saw the report, like, that's kind of a tell. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, <laughs> like just Google Seychelles, guys. Like, this is not, you know, this is someone who has some money out of the country. Let's yeah, some creepy way, meetings right? happening. Um, Rick Ramashenga is this technocrat. And, and I went down a memory lane, Tommy, if, you, if you'll bear with me. Tell for a second. me. When I was 24 years old and moved to Washington in 2002, uh, I was working as a speechwriter for Lee Hamilton, who's head of the Wilson Center. And the first set of remarks I had to write um, was, uh, or one of them at least, was him introducing the visiting prime minister of Sri Lanka, wow. Rick Ramashinga at the Wilson Center. No way. And I was like, this is so cool. I'm meeting a prime minister. And here I am 20 years later talking about the same dude. Talking about this now, dude's house getting burned down. Now, the reason I think uh, beyond just like that interesting glimpse of, into the job duties of 24-year-old Ben Rhodes is that like 20 years, this guy, like this is, the people in Sri Lanka want something new. This and, is another change they've yeah, been looking for. Yeah, this guy for. may be a little more technocratic, but he, like this is, this guy is not going to kind of come in and speak to people that are like in the streets, no. you know? No. And so there just clearly needs to be, I mean, he couldn't be a you know an upgrade from what we had, but like, they need to find a way to get to a more fundamental political reckoning while, you know, keeping whatever ship of economy afloat that they can, you know, which is going to be appealing to national assistance. So the best case scenario may be this guy, known commodity, beginning to get some of that international aid flowing, but get to an election where they can actually choose the president and not have this guy kind of self-select in. Man, that Lee Hamilton job still still paying dividends. Still huh? paying dividends, man. Good uh, anecdotes. Uh, <laughs> a couple of quick things uh, as we end here. So before we get to the interview... Um, so in addition to this horrible heat wave, in addition to the fires, France is dealing with a mustard shortage, Ben. The New York Times attributed the, sor- the shortage to, quote, a perfect storm of climate change, a European war, COVID supply problems, and rising costs. And I have to say, I experienced this shortage firsthand uh, when I was in France back really? in June. Yeah, we would go to grocery stores, try to get some grape Poupon or whatever. And every time you'd ask random people at the store why there wasn't any, you got different answers. And- in hindsight, now that makes sense because it sounds like they're different answers. There was a, a heat wave in Canada that cut output. The war in Ukraine reduced the, redu- uh, the production of yellow mustard in those countries. So basically, I just want to send a message of solidarity with our French friends, our French listeners, and say if they need help finding alternative condiments or recommendations, we are here for them. I'm going to start with one, Trader Joe's um, uh, Sriracha barbecue sauce. I hate to tell you this, but I think I saw there's a shortage of sriracha out there too. Oh my yeah. god! But I like I like where you're heading this with this. This is bad. I was thinking like, what are we gonna do? Well, we had this, yeah, because I didn't know that. Well, I did, my solution is bad either. Also, because I didn't know that there was this kind of global shortage. Don't of say aioli. Well, no, because what I was thinking is that like to make up for that that sub deal we took away from them, we <laughs> okay. could like you know. Airlift, like Berlin Airlift, oh, like Golden's Yellow Mustard. You like know? they did like for those, us with the baby yeah, formula. Yeah, yeah, like those tubes of Golden's Yellow Mustard. We could just you, yeah, know, you need the good stuff with the mustard seeds. The seeds, in there. yeah. Well, you, you know, Dijon. Uh, I guess you want. I mean, 
you know, there's 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 a lot of Heinz. There's like there's mayo, which you know the French brought to us. There might be fitting, just like Lafayette. We are here. Mm-hmm. Like we could come back with some mayonnaise. You know, I'm ready to rock. Yeah, y- you guys want to trade mustard for some Chateau Neuf de Pop? <laughs> yeah, call me. Let's make this thing Let's happen. Let's do it. Um, also, Ben, uh, last week Fox News. You know, every once in a while, they poke their head up and they just show you why they are essential, you know, mm-hmm. and not just domestically, but their foreign coverage. Um, here's a headline that, that caught our eye last week uh, that I thought was just really great. Justin Trudeau's new haircut draws comparison to Jim Carrey's Dumb and Dumber look. The sourcing was uh, random Twitter users. So I just want to say thank you to Fox News for, for making us smarter and helping, you know, understand what's happening with our neighbors to the north. They have like a pretty weird, like, Fixation on Trudeau. Too. They hate him. Like it maybe it's part of the. He's a liberal kind of, and successful. He's a liberal and successful, and there's a trucker thing. But it's also like his looks. They're very. You know, he had a beard, and that was like a Fox thing too, mm-hmm. right? Like, um, I don't know. Fox people may, maybe think about your own grooming. Um, you know, before we turn our cannons to the north here. Yeah, sorry, not as hot Trudeau's as him. Haircut, it's fine. It's a good haircut. I mean, I, I, I don't have any hair. I, like I, I'm, I'm also, it was just it was just a little bit shorter. Just a little bit shorter. It's not like he like went from you know shoulder length to <laughs> yeah, like yeah. a buzz. He cut. didn't buzz it, you know. Like yeah, it's just such a lame. that'd be a little weird. If you that would be his, a little. If you shaved his head, then maybe you get a headline out of it. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. A little, a little trim should not merit a fox headline. No, it should not. That's a good rule of thumb. Um, speaking of dumb headlines, uh, failed former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo apparently told the Times of London that he was considering running against Donald Trump in 2024. I say apparently. Because there's no way in hell I'm paying to get past that paywall. (laughs) (laughs) You got to be kidding me for this shit. Um, I had the same experience. (laughs) Ben, thoughts on rolling out this little nugget to the foreign press? I mean, I was asking you. Like you, you know, you're a better political strategist than I am. I mean, would you advise your candidate to to roll out their candidacy to the Times of London? You know, it used to be that the way you win the presidency was you go to Iowa, you get on the road, you meet with people directly, you go to New Hampshire, you go to South Carolina. Then last time, it was just you go on Fox News as many times as humanly possible. Maybe this is a radical new approach where you're reaching Republican primary voters uh, with a bank shot through the UK. Through the UK right-wing media. I mean, I, look, I I have to say this. It's been a pretty tough year politically. I think we're all kind of stealing ourselves for a pretty tough and, and at sure. times depressing yeah. cycle. The best thing happening in American politics the single best thing is the Mike Pompeo run for president. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm here for you. it. I can't wait for it. Because to see this guy whose opinion of himself is like so high, there's nobody on planet Earth that thinks that Mike Pompeo is like one-tenth of the man that Mike Pompeo thinks that mm-hmm. he himself is, that's, right? That's um, fair. And, and, you know, he raised money for this campaign and the what it was the Madison dinners or the you know some founding father dinners right you said donors and muckety mucks yeah, yeah. come to official state department events yeah and so this is you know starts his campaign there but the, in his mind you know that Mike Pompeo literally sees himself you know taking the oath of office he's probably got a draft of an inaugural address and this is a man who will go to Iowa and get just completely and utterly stomped by one of his fellow autocrats, whether it's Donald Trump, Ron DeSantis, whomever, and watching this guy like just fight with all of his remaining, not that there's much of a dignity to get to like 1% finish is going to be really enjoyable. He has a bookmarked page on YouTube to Hail to the Chief that he plays while he's showering and looks (laughs) at himself in the mirror. Yeah. yeah. And he's the only one who's ever had that. No question. There's no question. But he definitely didn't. He couldn't figure out iTunes, so he didn't download it. (laughs) Finally, 
Speaking of the UK, one more time before we get the interview. The race to succeed former British Prime Minister Boris Johnson is well underway. Uh, there was a debate of some sort, a candidate forum, and the candidates were asked the question of whether Boris Johnson is honest. And I'd like to you all to hear a super cut of their responses. Is Boris Johnson honest? Uh, <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> I think he is, he is somebody who uh, has... Just had yes or no will do. No, I, I'm not doing a yes or no because I think... We, it, would be wrong to, it would be wrong to do that. There have been some really severe issues, uh, and I think that uh, he has paid a, a price for that. I tried to give him the benefit of the doubt for as long as possible, and ultimately I reached the conclusion that I didn't, and that's why I resigned. So he is not honest. That, that, that's, that's, the, that's the question, yes or no? Well, th- there were a number of reasons that I resigned. Yeah. He has been very clear himself that he made mistakes in government. But he had a huge range of achievements. Is he an honest Brexit, man? dealing with COVID. I'll say that he did deliver on the promise. Okay, well, we'll get to that. If you want to support him, fine. That music in the end was to take him to commercial. Uh, what a legacy Boris Johnson is leaving behind. Yeah, and what a bunch of Weasley answers. Though. <laughs> and then, like, yeah. like, the best answer was the person who laughed, right? Because yeah. that's like, you know, the, yeah, they're in on all. the joke, right? She you said know. it all. But, uh, I mean... If you can't say that a man who's been found to be a habitual serial liar by official investigations over and over again is a liar, like, what are you guys doing? You know? He admitted to lying as well. It, it, it had Trump echoes, though. Like, they can't, you know, some they can't fully break from the guy, you know? I, I, I wish, I, I haven't seen any polling of you of, like, where the kind of British conservative primary electorate, I mean, I, I Tory party members are I, on Boris. I, I don't really know. I haven't. His approval, his overall approval rating was going in the toilet. Was in the shitter, like yeah. the, you know, but that doesn't mean that there's not, I mean, actually, you know, David Lammy said this uh, when we had him on after uh, Boris Nance's resignation, like he's turned, he took the Nigel Farage wing into the yeah. Tory party. And so now, as in the Republican Party, even though they may not be the majority of the Tory party, there's this like rabid base that probably... If you called Boris Johnson a liar, like you'd lose their vote, right? Um, uh, but it, yeah, it was it was both entertaining and a sign that like you know they're gonna have a hard time making a clean break from Boris, and that's good for for the Labour Party. Yeah, if is your former party standard bearer honest becomes a gotcha question, you got some <laughs> yeah. you got some problems. Not good. You got some real problems. Uh, okay, we are gonna take a quick break, and when we come back. You'll hear my interview with Politico's Christopher Miller about uh, all the latest news from Ukraine. So stick around for that. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made In Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made In. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made In Cookware. On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed in garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers. Vacations are always good. Sometimes they're even great. And Celebrity Cruises is about to ruin all of that. Because once you explore with us, you'll never want a vacation any other way. And with new Quick Caribbean Escapes, 
you'll never want a weekend any other way either. Celebrity Cruises. Nothing comes close. Visit Celebrity.com, call 1-800-CELEBRITY, or contact your travel advisor. Ships Registry, Malta and Ecuador. I am so excited to welcome back to the show Christopher Miller. He's a fantastic reporter now with Politico, who has been on the ground in Ukraine for a very long time covering the war uh, on the front lines all over the place and just doing some really amazing work. So, Chris, great to see you again. Yeah, good to be back. So um, the the latest news I saw this week out of Ukraine was President Zelensky fired two top law enforcement officials. You wrote a piece for Politico about how this could indicate something bigger, which is this fraying of sort of an unofficial agreement among political factions in Ukraine to be unified. Can you explain who was fired and why and kind of what that the broader political stakes are? Sure. So uh, President Zelensky uh, dismissed both his childhood friend, Ivan Bakanov, who he tapped um, back in uh, 2019 to lead the security service of Ukraine. And the prosecutor general, Irina Venediktova, who um, uh, was a part of his campaign uh, and was a lawyer from Kharkiv in eastern Ukraine um, and served as his prosecutor general. Uh, and, and I believe was, if I, if I can remember now, uh, the second prosecutor general under Zelensky. The first one, Ruslan Rybashovka, had been let go uh, after just six or seven months or so. Um, so it, it was it was a big shakeup. Both had been in their positions for the last couple of years, um, obviously making this choice in the middle of an active war uh, is is a big deal, um, but particularly so for these people in these positions. Right. Like this is I mean, the prosecutor general is the, the, the top prosecutor in the land. Um, the head of the security service of Ukraine is no insignificant position like this. This person, um, mm-hmm. Ivan Bakanov, in this case ran an operation that was almost the size of the FBI in a country that's the size of Texas. Wow, um, it's a behemoth. You know, it's, it, the, the SBU is the, the um, successor of the Soviet era KGB. It's the sort of um, mirrored uh, intelligence agency of Russia's FSB. Um, there's more than 30,000 employees and agents at the SBU. It has sweeping powers. Um, which is, uh, it, it's a very controversial agency. Um, and so he let go of, of these two people, um, you know, right in the middle of this, of this war and two people who were seen as being very close to him, uh, Bakanov of the SBU in particular, they, they're, they're school buddies. They go way, way back. They grew, they grew up on the same block. So, you know, Zelensky let them go under the guise of them having failed to root out Russian collaborators and traitors within their ranks. I think the president said there are 600 cases that are currently opened um, looking at people within the ranks of the security service and the prosecutor general's office who have in some way aided the enemy. Now, he didn't say that Bakanov or Venediktova themselves had done so, but that they had failed to root them out. Um, and and in doing and in, in not doing so, um, you know, harmed the security of the country. But what I've heard is that, well, well, that that reason is true. The other reason for doing so is to consolidate power even more than President Zelensky has, 
and to allow uh, his chief of staff, Andre Yermak, and his deputy, who is uh, uh, Oleg uh, Tatarov, um, another person who's very controversial for having served in the administration of Viktor Yanukovych um, before 2014, um, to themselves have more power and influence by appointing new people uh, to head the SBU and the prosecutor general's office. Um, and those people being close to them would allow them um, essentially to form more of a power vertical structure than to have more independent heads running these uh, very important uh, law enforcement bodies. A couple of thoughts. I mean, I saw you, you reported that uh, Bakanov's assistant was arrested for treason. So that seems bad uh, on the um, on the job performance front, but also I think it's important to say that like this isn't new. Person... Right, right. So it's thirty thousand people, right? And, and what I think is important to say is that you know it's you know the the security service has been infiltrated by Russian spies for decades. So this isn't a new thing. It's not right. something that happened Forever. under Zelensky. He actually deserves credit for at least implementing some new reforms uh, or, or attempting to reform an agency that has uh, for decades been um, uh, impervious to reform. Um, you know, there has been some progress made and the infiltration of, of, of the agency um, by Russia goes back a long, a long time, right? So this isn't a new problem. The complaint yeah. was that his man failed to, to fully reform this agency. Um, yeah, I, I just think that's important to note, right? It's not something that was brought on under Zelensky. Sure, of course. But also, I, I'm not sure how you root out a 30,000 person agency, you know, Ukrainian security service of Russian spies. Um, that's too many people. <laughs> it's just too many people. It's too big. And I say that coming from a country with uh, security services that are too big. But more broadly, I mean, can you help us understand sort of the latest in terms of where the military campaign is? Uh, and also more specifically, like, do Ukrainian officials feel like the the slow but steady influx of more modern we weapon systems from the West is moving the needle yet or, or moving the needle significantly? Yeah, you know, the messaging coming from Kiev right now is that the American supplied HIMARS, um, you know, multiple launch rocket systems and other heavier artillery that the West has provided has helped significantly. Um, it, it especially has helped Ukrainian forces to strike Russian forces um, in in uh, you know further beyond the front line. Um, these weapons are being used to take out Russian ammunition depots, um, you know, to uh, clog up supply lines, and uh, are are really making it uh, logistically more challenging for Russia to wage its campaign against Ukraine. Um, you know, I think, I mean, I certainly I have heard complaints from Ukrainian soldiers that a lot of the Western weaponry isn't making it to every unit, to every position. I think Ukraine is, is, um, uh, thinking strategically about where it moves these, uh, Western weapons. Um, you know, certainly a, a majority of them are going to the Donbass in the east of the country. Some are going to the south. And, you know, so you, you asked sort of about the state of play. I think, you know, right now you've got Russian forces making a big push in the Donbass to capture all of Donetsk Oblast. That has been an explicit goal of Vladimir Putin. 
and it would allow him um, this sort of feather in his cap, right? Like it was one of the one of the things that he said from the very get go that was a goal of Russia to take over all of Lugansk and Donetsk oblasts and thus the region known as the Donbass. He'd be able to spin that as a victory back home. Um, but in focusing so much attention there, which they have had to do because the Ukrainian military resistance has been greater than expected, they haven't been pushing in the south where in the early days of the uh, invasion, they were able to take a lot of ground north of Crimea. There, the Ukrainian military is starting uh, slowly a, a counteroffensive, uh, pushing further toward the city of Kherson, uh, which is of strategic importance because it's because of its location um, just north of the Crimean Peninsula, um, and uh, having port access. And so, you know, what Ukraine is preparing to do. Uh, is is a major counteroffensive. You know they're they're wanting more Western weapons to create this um, offensive force that they would like to use in order to push toward Kherson, hopefully capture Kherson, and create for them this stronger position from which they can possibly ne- uh, start restart negotiations uh, with with Russia. Um, you know, we haven't seen them make significant progress in the South yet. They've taken some smaller areas where the Russians, there's not a strong defense by the Russians, but as they get closer to Kherson, that, um, that conflict or battle will, will, um, will really be stepped up. I think right now, um, you know, what we're seeing from Russia is a slow progress in the East. And meanwhile, they're trying to soften um, the the battlefield, so to speak, not only in the east but across the country, using long range missiles. Um, you know, we've seen in recent weeks um, missile attacks really be stepped up. We've seen some really devastating ones on the cities of uh, Kremenchuk and Vinnytsia that have killed dozens of people. And you know, this comes after a period of a couple of months when uh, a lot of Ukrainians were who had fled the country were returning and thinking that these places in central Ukraine or western Ukraine or southern Ukraine um, were relatively safe, that the conflict had moved to the east and it was focused there. But Russia really does seem to be implementing more and more a, a campaign uh, of terror um, by, by striking much deeper into Ukraine using these long-range missile systems and hitting not military infrastructure, but civilian infrastructure and causing, um, you know, not only great damage to, um, you know, central and western cities, but but also um, significant carnage um, and, and, you know, killing dozens of people at a time. Yeah, no, that, that was you actually sort of alluded to my, my next question, which was, you know, every other day you see reports of uh, a Russian strike on an apartment building or a mall or a school or some civilian targets, purely civilian targets. And is your sense, I mean, I assume it is based on what you just said, that I wondered if Russia was starting to have to use older weapons that were not as precise, they weren't as good at, at hitting military targets, or whether they're just indiscriminately bombing places and, frankly, what is sustained terrorism. Uh, I don't know if there's a sense there uh, for what people think this is. I think it's a little bit of both. You know, I, I think they want to sow terror and chaos. I think they want to break, you know, the morale of the Ukrainians. Um, 
you know, and, and at the same time, if they can hit military, actual military targets and disrupt logistics and make it more difficult for Western weapons to reach the places um, that, that need them, uh, then all the better, right? Um, they are using uh, both, um, you know, weaponry that, that can target a specific location, something of, of high precision um, caliber, but they're also using things that are much more indiscriminate. And at this point, I don't know if they actually care whether or not they're firing one or the other at a specific target, because I think the goal really is to break the Ukrainian spirit Ultimately, the goal here is to destroy Ukraine, right? I mean, I think Putin has been pretty explicit about about that. Um, I think the comments just a couple of weeks ago were, you know, we are prepared to fight till the last Ukrainian. Uh, and so, you know, I, I think if, if you speak to Ukrainians like I have here in Kiev or, or just about anywhere else, um, you know, they, you know, they, they truly believe that um, the indiscriminate nature of, of, of these attacks are, um, are, 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 are being done on purpose. Like this is, this is part of Russia's plan. Um, but I also think it's a sign of Russia's frustration. They weren't able to capture Kiev or Kharkiv um, or carry out or, or, I mean, win the things that they wanted to early on. Um, this is a, a reaction to that. Um, it's, it's born of, I think, frustration, uh, because they now have the much more limited goal of taking, you know, what is just a, a very specific region in the east of the country, rather than capturing a significant portion of the country and including the capital and forcing the, the, the government and President Zelensky to capitulate. So, Chris, you know, you mentioned Ukrainian spirit. I mean, there's so much reporting and conversation in U.S. media about Western resolve, European resolve, you know. Will countries stick with Ukraine for the long term? And obviously, that's important. But I am I'm interested in you know what your view is on the Ukrainian spirit because obviously, like the last you know five six months has been horrific. The economic cost has been enormous, and I could imagine you know I could imagine if I lived in Ukraine wanting to just get the hell out of there, or I could imagine being really angry and wanting to fight. And I think you know that sentiment is important for a lot of reasons, but. Uh, also because it will determine the politics and whatever space Zelensky has to negotiate or keep fighting. And I was just curious sort of what what your read is generally on the Ukrainian resolve and how they're viewing this war, both, you know, medium and long-term. Yeah, it's it's, it's a great question. I mean, I think the, you know, broadly speaking, the Ukrainian people are united against Russia more than I've ever, I've ever seen before. Um, there is, you know, significant support for Zelensky. Um, there's very little criticism, if, if any criticism at all, of the government. Uh, and when there is, you know, there's the caveat that is, well, you know, we'll, we'll deal with some of this after the victory, after the war. Um, you know, so the, the, the resolve is there. Um, Ukrainians are united against Russia. They are you know, willing to endure whatever they need to, um, to see a Ukrainian win. But, you know, speaking about the, the soldiers on the front line, um, you know, the morale is fraying a bit. They're exhausted. They haven't had a break. They've been fighting 24 seven since February 24th. Um, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you about, uh, a soldier that I've gotten to know very well, who has been 
in eastern Ukraine on the front line since well before the invasion on February 24th. Uh, we spoke just the other day from um, by phone, um, me from Kiev here and him from his hospital bed in eastern Ukraine after you know, um, what is it now? Four, four plus months. Um, he finally was injured. Um, luckily not seriously, but he took uh, shrapnel from an 82 millimeter mortar to the back and was taken to the hospital. Um, wow. some of his, um, uh, soldiers were not, uh, were, were not so lucky and, and died. Um, but he said in the past three weeks, they had um, rotated some new people in and moved some other people to other positions. And of the 60 of them that were all fighting together uh, at the about mid-June, only 20 of them were still actively fighting on the front line. Of, of the, there, there, were, there were 40 Jesus. who were either killed in action or were wounded and um, you know, taken, taken to hospital. And so you know, he said, we're exhausted. Um, we need more help. Um, we need more assistance, both from the Ukrainian government and military and the West in terms of, um, uh, you know, weaponry uh, with which they can properly defend themselves. Um, you know, the, the, the soldiers that I found that are, you know, that were, were, or the units where the morale is still high are those that are receiving howitzers from the U.S. and HIMARS. Um, they have a lot of weaponry from um, mm -hmm. the Germans and the Brits and, and so forth and so on. The units that have been stuck with smaller arms and are outgunned and outmanned uh, where they are fighting on the front line, there the mood is a little bit more grim. Um, you know, they're, they're exhausted. They're yeah. being hit every day with airstrikes, um, um, attack helicopters, this, this guy said. Um, you know, they're fighting. He said, we're fighting an artillery war with Kalashnikovs. Uh, which is just not sustainable. And so, you know, they're, they're, they're tired. They need more help. Um, you know, they are waiting for a rotation that doesn't seem to be coming. Um, so on the front line, it's a little bit different than the sort of general morale that exists here in Kiev or in Western Ukraine, where, you know, the population really is, um, you know, very proud and, um, standing up in every way they can against Russia and willing to go the distance. Um, but the people who are actually doing the fighting, they are growing more tired by the day. This is a really grinding, exhausting war. Artillery warfare is absolutely brutal. Um, you know, shells just rip people apart. And so it, it can, it can really take a, a heavy psychological toll. I can't even, I mean, I can't imagine being in a unit where you literally don't have weapon systems that can respond back, right? I mean, you, you can't reach the Russian systems. If you have the M77 howitzer, a US howitzer, those have a, a very long range. The HIMARS, as you described, I think it's the longest range weapon system on the battlefield. Well, I mean, I guess the Russians have long range missiles that they can fire literally from Russia that have longer range, but you know, you get my point. But I, I can't imagine, as you said, I mean, just being in a foxhole watching shells rain around you and, and trying to fire back with a, with a rifle that is completely unsustainable. And I imagine, you know, as you've reported and others have reported that there are men and women out there who just feel like cannon fodder. Right. Yeah, that's exactly right. Christopher Miller, thank you so much for uh, the amazing reporting you're doing. Thanks for joining us today. Everyone should follow you on Twitter, check out your stuff at Politico. Uh, it is some of the best reporting I've seen uh, from the ground, from Kiev, from everywhere. So thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Always nice to be here. 
Thank you again to Christopher Miller for doing the show late at night over uh, over there. Thanks to Mike Pompeo for making us laugh. Boris Johnson, uh, again, let us know if you guys need mustard. Yeah, I was going to thank the French for, for, for Dijon in the first place, but, you know. Right. And now, we, you know, we have to come to their aid. <laughs> As we will. Yeah. The airlift will, will commence. Uh, all right. Talk to you guys next week. See ya. Pod Save the World is a Crooked Media production. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our producer is Haley Muse. Saul Rubin is our associate producer. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Phoebe Bradford, Milo Kim, and Amelia Montooth, who upload our episodes and videos at youtube.com slash crooked media. Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.